welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the fastest growing movie podcast out there where we talk all things film. On today's episode, we discuss The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And this is James. And today we're going to continue our descent into Middle-earth and do Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, which came out in 2002, directed by Peter Jackson, written by Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Stephen Sinclair. While Frodo and Sam edge closer to Mordor with the help of the shifty Gollum, the Divided Fellowship makes a stand against Sauron's new ally, Saruman and his hordes of Isengard. The shifty Gollum, I like that. Yeah, you like that? (laughs) (laughs) Two Towers was an astounding sequel to an incredible masterpiece of an original film. And like we said in the previous episode about this, each one of these movies is, you could call it a masterpiece, and it's the only uh, sequel to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture. I think all three of them. All three of them. All three of them. It's the only only trilogy because Godfather 2 was nominated. Yeah, the third one won, but it's incredible for a trilogy, all three movies to be nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. And then Two Towers was, uh, you could say, vastly different from the first one because there are a lot of changes to the story happening with this film. Uh, The Fellowship is split up. We get some new characters. We get to meet new locations and new creatures. So Peter Jackson and the crew added a lot to the second film in the franchise to really um, show us new things. Yeah, and this is just as loved as the other two. It's number 14 on IMDb users' top-rated movies, which is insane. Again, not bad. That's that's ranked the lowest out of all three, (laughs) but still, that's that's pretty good. It won two Oscars. Um, I think they were for production design and visual effects. I think those are the two. But again... What we when we talked about in the first one what was what was missing from that from me making it the best is the minimal presence of Gollum. The presence of Gollum in the two towers is what makes it so much more interesting, I think, than the two than the fellowship, because we of course we get the villain with Lurtz, the presence of Saruman and Sauron, that is the antagonist to the, fel- to that's the fellowship. That, that's that orc leader with yeah. the handprint. But face. to yeah, but to actually get a villain that's that's traveling with the with some of the members of the fellowship, obviously, obviously with Sam and Frodo. But to have that presence constantly going back and forth, that's what brings so much more depth to the film, and also the the creature creation of Gollum and the motion capture CGI that they did with it with Andy Serkis was it's not it wasn't the first time motion capture was used. Like Jar Jar Binks, it was actually the actor wore a Jar Jar Binks suit, but it wasn't the same thing in terms of copying his facial expressions and mannerisms on camera with CGI. And then filming it later on, but it was the best, the best and most advanced version of motion capture, where these actors are actually interacting with the CGI being the CGI actor of Andy Serkis on camera on set. The very best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is become a patron at Patreon.com/slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. You get special perks like personalized messages, personalized videos, our podcast schedules. Top tier patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast. We're uploading a bunch of exclusive content on there every week. So check it out for all that content and head on over to our new website, Raiders of the Lost Podcast.com to check out all of our sources of content, our merch, our custom movie posters, and you can also join the fan club and Patreon there. They actually filmed um, a good amount of footage, I would say maybe six months or so of the film with Andy Serkis without the intention of doing uh, face motion capture or body motion capture. He was on set, we were in the leotard and stuff, but they weren't planning on adding his physicality to the CGI creation. So they actually created a version of Gollum that we um, haven't seen that more closely resembles the Gollum in the first film. You get a couple of shots of him. And 
upon directing Andy Serkis over, over the course of a few months, Peter Jackson realized that he was giving so much in the performance that he had to somehow implement Andy Serkis into the character more so than just using his voice. And so they, as they were filming, they developed the capture technology for capturing his face and then um, capturing his, his, his body movements because when he was on set, he was doing all the stuff that Gollum, you see Gollum do. He was really crawling around like that. He was really uh, using his facial features in that way. And so um, Peter Jackson and the team, they had to actually redo the CGI that they had already started on the original Gollum. They had to really completely change it to make it look similar to Smeagol, to, to um, Andy Serkis and also capture his physicality. And Andy Serkis puts on an acting clinic in both of these films, the second and third one. And his performances are so underrated because he's not the human on camera that, you know, I think that's why he doesn't get really any recognition from award shows or the general population. They just think it's just some guy. It seems like it's an easier task than actual acting on camera. But if you could probably argue that it's it's harder because he's creating this character that doesn't exist. And, and, all, and it's harder because he's wearing a leotard. Yeah. And now he's wearing a camera strapped to his face that's like right in his eyeline. Yeah. So it's such a hard task. And he does such an amazing job, especially the duality going going on in Gollum this film where it's Smeagol and Gollum vying for power in this body going back and forth and there's that uh, incredible back and forth they have um, when Gollum finally I mean when Smeagol finally takes over the power which we'll talk about later on but Gollum is terrifying at times obviously very creepy but he's also hilarious in this movie like he makes me laugh out loud so often and he's like he's always being so dramatic and like so extra like when when Sam cooks the rabbit he's like oh you ruined it <laughs> and like he's like he's like talks about how he he hates bread and stuff yeah. so he's just like very extra but in a funny way he's like a diva monster yeah and they're also referred to as uh, treacherous golem and friendly golem the split personalities and and they're actually physical differences between the two golems so for the treacherous golem golem's pupils are are actually much smaller they're much narrower and his body language is more hunched like he hunches his shoulders and he moves around like a wild cat and that makes him seem like sinister and and predatory like and like he's always like looks like he's ready to pounce and then the friendly golem his pupils are much wider and his body movements are more like childlike and he seems much more innocent and naive and even cute at times and so there are a lot of very different subtle differences between the physicality of the two golems and golems introduced because at the end of the fellowship sam and frodo end up taking their own separate paths so the fellowship splits up and their their new path is their chart they're charting it alone to to mordor to mount doom and at the beginning of the film they seem optimistic or at least sam seems very optimistic until they realize they have no idea where they're going and they keep walking in circles and walking in circles is actually very accurate for human beings that have no sense of direction or don't know where they're going because i think it depends on like if you if you're right-handed you'll keep walking in circles because your right foot is more dominant in your stride so it takes like a slightly larger step yeah like if you walked in a desert try and make a straight line you'd end up making a giant circle wow and um that's until they come across Gollum, who's been tracking them and obviously frodo had heard things of Gollum from gandalf while they were in, in uh the mines of moria so he he also learned from Gandalf that he wasn't different, too different from a hobbit at one time. So he he put some nuggets of empathy inside Frodo for Gollum, which comes into play with their with their relationship. And the introduction of him is terrifying because not only is he a monster, but again, we've never seen a CGI character like this before where where the actors are actually interacting physically with Andy Serkis on set on camera and 
it just adds so much more of a epic performance when the actors are actually like touching or grabbing or, or fighting and wrestling with this CGI being. And the CGI still holds up to this day. I, obviously, they've improved upon it, but it's it looks fantastic. And Gollum's character design is just disturbing. He's so skinny and wiry, and he just has a few strands of very long hair, and his teeth are just all rotten and mostly fallen out. And and his gigantic eyes seem so big compared to his head. And it's just an a instantly recognizable character. And they they played around with different designs of the character. Initially, they were they were thinking about uh, taking his nose away, so it was more like a, a skull nose without the cartilage. Um, but they thought he looked too he looked like he was dead, like he was a zombie. And they also were thinking about giving him a pot belly, which I think would have been a little too funny. So that might not have worked out. And I think the final design of Gollum, I think they settled on was pretty perfect for, in my case, in my understanding of from reading the books and imagining Gollum. Yeah, and then it's so incredible when you watch Return of the King and the opening of that and you see how Schmeagol becomes Gollum over time. And we have this aspect of duality of Gollum and Schmeagol, where you can call him, like you said, the treacherous Gollum or the uh, the other Gollum. Friendly. The friendly Gollum. I like to just call him Schmeagol and, and Gollum. I, just, I call him Smeegs. Smeegs, Smeegs for short. <laughs> What's Tater's precious? What's Tater's precious? And it's so apparent that, and we learn later on that Gollum is what made Smeagol survive through all all these years with the ring, and it's what's driving him to obtain the ring again and obtain their precious. And clearly, it's a situation where Gollum has control over Smeagol, but because of the relationship that Smeagol develops with Frodo having this new um, master that they call in the film, where he developed... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. De- develops feelings for him. He, he starts to trust Frodo and Gollum and even saves Frodo's life a few times in this film. And it, it helps build that relationship up. Smeagol has the confidence and strength to finally overtake Gollum in this body. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Manscaped. The leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming use our coupon code RAIDERSOFTHELOST at checkout for 20% off and free shipping from Manscaped.com. Over 2 million men, 2 million men, are using Manscaped products, including their incredible waterproof lawnmower 3.0 groomer. It has a built-in light. It's sensitive to the touch. You can use it in the shower. It's a beast, fellas. You got to get on Manscaped. Their boxer briefs are super comfortable. The shirts are great. Their colognes, deodorizers, we have everything. Their their face and body wipes are amazing. Manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Everyone listening, these are fantastic products and excellent gifts for the men in your life. Yeah, it seems as though Gollum is a representation of 
you could say Sauron's soul within the ring that has um, entered the mind of Schmeagel over over the centuries. And so this is the like the ring, the evil ring representation of Schmeagel, which has like imprinted itself on into Gaul into Smeagol's mind and and so this is why he he has two personalities because obviously Gollum wasn't there before he had the ring obviously Gollum had to have been created by the ring um in order to keep a grasp of Smeagol and so Smeagol was unable to to ward off this new personality because he was alone um we talked about it in the first episode about how his difference with Bilbo especially was because he had no one with him, whereas Bilbo always had friends and family around him to probably keep him from obsessing over the ring too much. And whereas Smeagol, he got the ring and he was by himself and he abandoned um, civilization because they were hunting him for the murder of his friend. I also still think the act of how he got the ring made his attachment to it more sinister in a way, kind of yeah, like that's uh, a good point. Yeah, you know, what I mean, kind of like the most the mortal sin of, of murder. I think that's what made it much more of a powerful effect of him. But you can argue that having Sam by Frodo's side always keeps him from giving into the ring multiple times, especially in this one. Absolutely, Sam so, does help yeah. stop him from grabbing the ring, and even stops him from putting the ring on when there's the the uh, the ring wraith in front of him, or is that the the witch kings in front of him? Yeah, the wraith. Yeah. Um, so having a, a friend or a, 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 someone, a loved one with you, I think, can help you fight off the, the ring, whereas Smeagol didn't have that. Yeah, and, and we have this trio of Frodo, Sam, and Gollum because now they've enlisted Gollum because of Frodo's decision to have him lead them to Mordor, to Mount Doom. Well, to the Black Gates, actually, in this film. And it's an interesting relationship because Sam does not trust Gollum because he's, he sees Gollum for what he is. He sees him as a villain. Whereas Frodo, because of what Gandalf said to him, because Frodo throughout this film in the in the third film starts to understand what Gollum went through when he was Smeagol or what, what Smeagol went through. That's why he starts going, calling him Smeagol instead of Gollum because now that Smeagol personality is taken over. So he empathizes with Smeagol from what he's been through and maybe Frodo in part of his mind thinks that this could possibly be me so I understand what he's going through and why he's crazy like this. And there's also in the back of your head, you can't really trust this being, even though Smeagol's taken over and found that strength to win, is he just trying to trick them? Is he going to lead them down a bad path? Is he trying to eventually get the ring for himself? That's what makes Gollum such a great villain because you never really know how it's going to end up with him because, like you said, Smeagol does take over and he does become a loyal servant and guide to Frodo and um, he wants to please Frodo and saves him multiple times, which helps earn his tr earn Frodo's trust. He even says he's been true to his word to Sam. Yeah, exactly. When they get to the Black Gate and Smeagol, obviously, he's not very intelligent, but he, he has his moments because he brought them to the Black Gate, but they had to turn back because they couldn't just walk right in. And then Sam becomes suspicious of that, but then Smeagol just goes, well, you said take you to the Black Gate, so I took you to the Black Gate. Mm -hmm. So he's very, he's become very childlike in his naivety in a lot of ways as Smeagol. And throughout the film, later on, they get captured by Faramir and his men. And this is a real turning point for this trio and for, for Smeagol and his relationship with Frodo because Frodo betrays Smeagol and lets them capture him. And then even though they get let free later on in the film, 
Gollum takes over Smeagol's personality because they have that amazing back and forth argument. And again, the, it's like two or three times they have these arguments, Gollum and Smeagol. And Gollum gains the power back because he's starting to corrupt Smeagol into realizing that he can't trust Frodo, he can't trust the Hobbitses, and that they have to get the ring back by any means necessary. And there's even that great scene, that great moment where he's like, we have to put out their eyes and we have to we have to kill them. And when he brings up killing him, that's the point where Smeagol says, oh no, we can't do it. It's too risky. It's too risky. But I think that's just Gollum eventually starting to corrupt Smeagol again. And soon he's going to have full control over the body. And also saying it's too risky because they, Gollum is a villain, but he's terrified of dying because... Die, die, death would mean that he wouldn't have the ring anymore. So I think that he has a huge fear of death. Well, I think he has a, a fear of death without the ring. Yeah. Because he does die with the ring in possession. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. But we also have another trio. Let's let's move on to some other characters where we have Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. And these three guys are so fun to watch on camera. And whenever they're on screen I love together, watching them run. I get giddy. Yeah, it's hilarious. Everything, Every scene they're in is either going to be funny... It's going to be emotional. There's going to be some epic action or it's going to be all three of those things. And what's so fun about them is, or what's so great about their scenes is, is the traveling that Peter Jackson shot and it, with mixed in with Howard Shore's amazing score and these giant wide landscape shots and the helicopter circle shots. This, this film just looks incredible and practical effects filming in New Zealand, all these, all these structures that they've built and just riding the horses or just running through these giant valleys and mountains, it's incredible. And apparently for all these running scenes, um, the actors all had serious injuries. Uh, Viggo Mortensen broke his toe when he kicked a helmet, and Orlando Bloom um, broke his ribs during an action sequence. And then the actor um, who stood in for Gimli, because um, obviously we te- the uh, Rice... Um, Davis is six foot one, so he doesn't play him on the wide shots. And so the the stand-in for Gimli, he had some kind of serious shoulder injury. Um, and so all three of them were incredibly injured for all of these running sequences. This episode is also sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Head on over to MoviePosters.com and use our coupon code Raiders15. Again, Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com is the number one place to get your posters online. If you're looking at our set on YouTube, you'll see that our set is decked out with these posters. They're amazing, high quality. They can do pretty much any kind of size, backlighting, framing, any movie imaginable. They got it. MoviePosters.com is also paired up with our podcast to sell our custom-made Raiders of the Lost Podcast movie posters. Head on over to our website, RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com to check those posters out along with the rest of our merch. And again, Go to movieposters.com and use our coupon code Raiders15. Again, Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. And their main plot for the first half of the film is tracking down the hobbits, Merry and Pippin, who were captured. And I think what they're doing is showing loyalty, not to just everyone in the Fellowship, but to Boromir, who just who just died trying to save the hobbits before at the end of Fellowship. And may, I think they're trying to not, not let his sacrifice have been for nothing, and they're trying to to track down the hobbits and save them. I think they're also, they're always, they decide to go to fight for something because like they don't, Aragorn isn't someone who gives up. Um, and so he's always seeking a reason to fight and uh, finding the hobbits is good enough reason for him. And the thing with Aragorn in this film is uh, he, I think he really takes a big turning point from, from being Strider, being the ranger to eventually beginning to accept who he is and um, his role to play in the scheme of things. And Gandalf had said it a few times about him being the, the, the future king and 
Um, I think he's beginning to realize that he has the ability um, and the power to unite Middle Earth against this evil force. And I think with this film, he proves himself to be incredibly kingly in terms of leading men, leading forces against evil, and in terms of his compassion, his uh, his warrior mentality, and his willing willingness to never give up. And so I think he truly shows his his colors as a rightful king in this movie. Yeah, Gandalf's always trying to egg him on to try to be the person you were born to be, be the king that you're supposed to be, and basically part of that prophecy and the bloodline of Isildur. And speaking of Gandalf, <laughs> you're laughing, you're smiling because right. I said it right. <laughs> it's sealed door. I got it. <laughs> speaking of Gandalf, the opening of this film is absolutely incredible. When oh, my God, yeah. When he's falling down the the giant cliff or whatever you want to call it in the Mines of Moria. Because if you'd never read the books and you're seeing the first movie for the first time, you think Gandalf died to his death with that ball rag giant fire demon. But it opens up showing how incredibly badass Gandalf really is. We never we seen him fight in fellowship. We seen him, you know, in mines and he's, he's you know he's got the sword and the staff and everything. But he just glides down with the sword in hand and just fearlessly starts fighting this giant fire demon like a complete badass. And you didn't expect this from this wizard, this old man. But then when you understand the lore and the canon of the stories, he's a couple thousand years old and he's an epic wizard fighter. <laughs> epic wizard epic fighter, wizard fighter. <laughs> i mean that's a pretty good way to, to describe him he really busts heads in the third one like he he whips people around and and it's a great opening it's really beautiful and the music is fantastic and it's, it's like the the first film's opening and new line wanted peter jackson to make another prologue narrated by Kate blanchett um condensing the entire first film but Peter Jackson was like, that sounds stupid. <laughs> so he's like, I'm he's like, it just came out a year ago. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to make this badass, amazing, epic scene. And it's an amazing way to open the, open the film. And uh, they don't explain what Gandalf is, but they show that when he explains that he died and then he was sent back. And that means what happens is Gandalf's being, he's actually a cosmic being. And he was sent to Earth by other cosmic beings to basically play a role in this in this war and so he has a an important role to play and that's why they send him back yeah what's so cool about the scene is we can only assume he's falling to his death without knowing this information which make which makes him more crazy and just that wide shot of them uh, above the giant underground lake with the fire demon and, and gandalf falling down it's such an incredible beautiful shot and the lighting and cinematography again in this film and all three films is absolutely incredible and i love how you just brought up gandalf is sent here he's sent to middle earth to fight in this war and also so wasn't saruman so saruman is the same thing except he's a white wizard and that's why later on when the aragorn legolas and gimli they actually stumble upon the white wizard in the in fangorn forest when they're trying to track down Merry and pippin and we have the reveal of the white wizard gandalf now and what peter jackson did to kind of fool the audience and to fool legolas aragorn and gimli was he had christopher lee who plays saruman and ian mckellen both record the same audio and put it together so we kind of don't know what's going on when when he disarms all three of them instantaneously and gandalf once he's revealed and they're like who is this guy how i mean how can this possibly be how can this be you gandalf we thought you died gandalf says something about how i am saruman or as he should have been and he's, I think that's saying that because Saruman has gone dark and he's taken the side of Sauron and he's betrayed Middle-earth and the reason why he's there, I think that's why Gandalf was given the honor, you could say, of becoming a white wizard and coming back to Middle-earth and fighting for good. 
So we took Saruman's, Saruman's job. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah 100%. <laughs> Saruman got fired. He, they, Peter Jackson even uh, put um, Christopher Lee's face in there for a few frames of the shot. Yeah, so I think you're right. You can see his face for a moment, and that it's like, oh, is that... And so that makes sense, actually, why Peter Jackson would do that. Well, I think that's just the way it is in the... Either way, it's pretty cool. Yeah. But I think that's, what, that's why he says that line. And one of my favorite aspects of the film is that this storyline with the trio and Gandalf is it introduces us to the the region of Rohan, which will become a major player in the war for the ring. And I love Rohan. It's a it's a beautiful location that they actually built a lot of those huts and they actually did build that that I, I don't know if City you, of Adoras yeah. and the Golden Hall. Yeah, so the Golden Hall. Village. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a castle, but the hall. And that was actually a real a real set they built and they used. And I think you can still visit that set to this day. I'm sure. Why would they take it down just like Hobbiton? Yeah, exactly. So. And, and that's why the cinematography looks so incredible in this movie, especially when they're filming on that mountain, especially like those scenes where Eowyn comes out of the Golden Hall and the, it's just like this beautiful landscape behind her. Like that's real. That's re Those are the real mountains behind her. And that's why it almost looks fake because it looks so good. You always, you always make this funny joke when they're walking up um, and going to the Great Hall, and they're passing by all like the poor villagers, and they they live in, the, in these small huts. And then the king's just like living right there, like living in a golden rich. hall. <laughs> it's like there's like inequality, feet, inequality. Away. There we go. Geez, like what does he spit on them when he leaves and like gets his vitamin D for the day? Jeez, come on, Theoden, give give some of the wealth away. It's so funny, but Theoden's a great character, and uh, he I. If you remember the Titanic, he's actually the captain of the Titanic in that film. And it's just like mind blowing. I never realized that until I looked into it. And uh, he's a very important character because he's the leader of this of this people. And they're going to be one of the largest armies of, of, of the entire Middle Earth army to battle the, the evil forces of Sauron. So they're, they're very much necessary to the fight. And Aragorn's dealing with... The loss of Arwen from his life because she's on her journey to enter the Undying Lands with the Elvish people because it's her time. I want to go to the Undying Lands. I know, right? And Aragorn has, you know, being convinced by Elrond, El ended their relationship and he's gone to, to war. He ghosted her. He ghosted her for sure. He's like, I'm not just not, I just don't want anything serious right now. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm ready for a relationship. <laughs> but there's this great scene where he has, it's either... It's hard to tell if it's a dream, is if it's a hallucination, if it's magic, if it's if it's like real connection that they're having or like real conversation where he's with her um, in this dreamlike landscape. But it seems so real and it seems like it could be part of the magic of the elves that they are really communicating. They are really with each other in this moment. Are you talking about the scene when she wakes him up? Yeah. Yeah, that's real. They, have, they can have that connection. Yeah, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's pretty legit. But it's really beautiful and... It's hard, it's hard to ghost someone when they can do that to you. <laughs> And we get to see the complicated decision that Arwen has with choosing Aragorn and leaving, living a mortal life where she will die or being convinced by her father, Elrond, to enter the Undying Lands. And it's a pretty tough decision, but I mean, Vigo is pretty handsome. What's going on with Sauron and Saruman is Saruman has created Isengard basically to build an army of Orkai and Orc for Sauron in, in his war. And... What's happening is he's having his orcs go out and basically destroy every village in Rohan. And this is where Aragorn's trying to convince Theoden. Once they free Theoden from the spell of Saruman, that they have to stand up to fight and fight against the orcs. But let's talk about how he's taken over by by first the corruption in, in words of Wormtongue and then by Saruman. Wormtongue is actually played by 
Brad Dorif, and he has been the voice of Chucky. No way. The, the serial killer doll since it, the first film came out. So that's the guy who voices Chucky is Wormtongue. And they actually had to shave his eyebrows for this role. And he kept filming his part, and then they would add new scenes or new bits of dialogue. So he had, he had to come back four different times to get his eyebrows shaved over two years. So creepy. He's, he's so good in this movie, though, and his character is terribly cre- incredibly creepy, Wormtongue. And to me, when I watch it, he I think he's doing this to try to get power because he's so obsessed with Ewan and he wants to get her love more than anything at any cost and I think when Theoden is eventually freed by Gandalf and Theoden shows mercy to Wormtongue and he goes and runs to his daddy in Isengard (laughs) (laughs) daddy yes Uh, Saruman he's talking about how they're going to wage war and they have an army and, and Wormtongue's like how could you have an army and then he sees the army of 10,000 orcs and he sheds a tear and it, I, the first few times I saw this movie when I was younger, I used to think that like he was crying because he, it's like the most beautiful sight he's ever seen. But I think when I watch it now, every, every time I think that he's crying because he didn't want the end of mankind. He didn't want the end of Middle Earth and all these species and beings. And I think that he realizes he's gone too far. Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it. That could be definitely a good interpretation. He just wants, he's that. just in love with her. And I, I think he's like, I think I went, I didn't want this to happen. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I never thought about that. That actor, he can actually do that on cue, so that wasn't planned. Um, but he did it on set, and Peter Jackson was like, "Hell yeah, you killed it, bud!" <laughs> <laughs> and the, the size of that army, uh, you gotta like. We're used to seeing films with like gigantic armies, but the Middle Earth is not that many people or creatures in it. So ten thousand soldiers is actually a very sizable army for this world. So that it is it, ten thousand doesn't sound like a lot, but it actually is in this world. And what happens is even though Aragorn's trying to convince Theoden, the king of Rohan, to stand up and and fight the orcs and to stand up uh, against Saruman and Sauron, Theoden decides to have his people retreat to Helm's Deep. And on their way to Helm's Deep, they actually get uh, attacked by all those those wargs. The wargs, the the weird war hog. They're not weird. They're 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 wolf hogs. (laughs) They're special beings. And it's a very intense scene and great action. And Legolas throwing those arrows, shooting those arrows. And unfortunately, Aragorn is taken off cliff by one of the the wargs and one of the orcs. And this is a really important plot point because obviously the Fellowship and everyone else think that thinks that he died, but Aragorn survives because he's he's the man. <laughs> and uh, when he wakes and he's traveling on his horse, which comes and finds him, he sees the army of ten thousand that's marching for Mar- Rohan and marching for Helm's Deep. So it's really important for him to see that. And he rushes to Helm's Deep, and that's how they beget, they get the warning that there are 10,000 orc and orcai coming to Helm's Deep to try to kill everyone there. And the Battle of Helm's Deep has got to be the highlight of the movie. You can even argue it's the highlight of the entire franchise. It's an unbelievably epic, fierce battle. And it's almost 40 minutes long. It's 39 minutes long. And it's just so impressive what Peter Jackson did because, yes, there's a lot of CGI involved in this scene but they only could do so much at this time to make the whole thing believable and so they built a real helm's deep that was really there and they actually had the the scenes play out there they built this wall they built the gate they they built everything and um, they even used they call it a bigature where um, certain parts of helm's deep was to scale and then like the edges of of the helm's deep like that no one would go near those were miniaturized to, so that forced perspective made it seem like it went longer than it really does. But 
other than those few um, tricks, the entire thing was real, and it's an astounding achievement for filmmaking. Yeah, and this battle, like you said, how do you make a 40-minute action scene stay entertaining and keep an audience enthralled the whole time? And I think that Peter Jackson did a great job by, again, visual effects, practical effects, raising the stakes, and it's an interesting storyline for Theoden throughout this battle, and the elves come to help, and... We have the hilarious Wilhelm scream, which has been used in over 400 movies. You get one of those in there too. Um, but this took 100, 120 days of, of filming, filming, an insane amount of extras. There's a ton of great action, obviously, but there's also a ton of humor and brevity with like Gimli and Legolas and their kill count going on. But we we experience real loss. We experience vulnerabilities. The the wall gets blown up, and I love the shock on Theoden's face because these. People had never seen an explosion before in their entire lives. They probably were like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> Is that all you have? <laughs> and so to watch Helm's Deep become overrun by orcs and orakai, it's very emotional for an audience member. Even though I've seen it like 15 times, I'm still like, holy crap, I can't believe the orcs are running in there. This is terrible. And so it there's this great storyline and elements, especially with Theoden, because you know he's a little confident, arrogant in the beginning. He's confident that he knows how to defend his own keep, but then they get overrun, and then Theoden is convinced by Aragorn to stand up and fight and march out, and then Theoden gets the confidence through Aragorn to go out onto the ramp to to keep fighting. And even if you're gonna die, we're gonna go out strong. And the the battle begins with this amazing sequence of just silence. And it's great filmmaking from Peter Jackson where um, the armies of men and elves are just standing along the walls just waiting. And then it begins raining and you can see the army approaching and the closer they get, the louder they get and the chanting and the stomps. And all actually all the chants and stomps were, um, they were performed by a crowd in a, a cricket arena. And Peter Jackson went to a cricket, a cricket match and he uh, used the loudspeaker and the the jumbotron to uh, lead the entire crowd and chanting these Urukai chants. That's so cool. And there's 25,000 people chanting them. So these are all, this is really uh, a real sound effect that they did. And um, it's, it's a really cool little fact. And uh, the film, the opening is just, it's so tense and the entire battle plays out. It is its own movie within a movie. It has the same kind of trajectory of a movie where it has that beginning and then it has, you could call the inciting incident when that old man accidentally fires his arrow. I, I love that because it's like, what, the orcs weren't going to kill you guys anyways? It's like <laughs> he started the fight. It's like, you guys came here to kill us. <laughs> There's 10,000 of you. What do you, what do you think we're not going to fight? Well, you killed our guy, man. We were just going to hang not out. Cool. We just wanted to play PS5, bro. We were going to watch Call Me By Your Name together. <laughs> <laughs> the orcs like, can you believe they shot him? <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you, man? That's Mike. <laughs> and so, and anyways, after that inciting incident, the the battle begins, and you the, you could say the big event, the big the big event would be when um, they make make it to the wall and they start bringing the ladders up. And then there are also obstacles that help propel the story forward. It's like the ladders get put on. There's that explosion. They breach the gate. The bigger um, ladders. Yeah, the bigger ladders. <laughs> just so many ladders. <laughs> there's, there's like 30 a second coming up on those things. And so Peter Jackson threw in obstacles to help propel the story forward. But then also there's cool beats like when um, like when Legolas surfs down the staircase while firing arrows. Like that's f super fun. And then when, when Aragorn throws Gimli onto the bridge. Trust me. <laughs> don't tell the elf. 
And so he he blends all these classic elements that you would have in a, a screenplay, these beats, and he puts it into this condensed 40-minute sequence, and that's why it works so well. And then we have the incredible climax at the end of this battle, at the end of the film, when they storm out into the ramps on horseback to, to fight the orcs, even though they're probably going to die. And then they look to the east because Gandalf said, look to my coming in the first light of the fifth day at dawn, look to the east. Then Gandalf and Aramir and their army up there are waiting to come down that hill and then the sunlight breaches and they're be able they're able to get through the front ranks of the orakai and orc that are waiting for them at the bottom of the hill. That's such an amazing shot when they're they're storming down the hill and he does this like kind of like a dutch angle and it's the orc army on one side and then the the army of good on the other side and then they they collide and it's it's amazing with in the sun's behind them. I mean, I get goosebumps every time I see that and you're like you're like Fuck yeah, let's go, <laughs> let's go. And actually those um, horses were really running into that crowd. And the way to prevent any horses from getting injured was all of the spears from the Orakai army were made from cardboard. So, but they don't care about the humans that are running in. <laughs> as long as the horses. No, no, because like so they, they made like they made like open lanes for the horses, but the guys no, no, had to like stab at I'm them. I'm just kidding. Just the way you said it, it made it sound like they didn't care about the extras. But were any horses harmed? Sixty-five men were killed. But what about horses? <laughs> but yeah, so carver was actually used. But also, obviously, with an army like that, there's like seven hundred horses running around. So that's not real. Um, but the way they filmed that was practically, and it was real effect. And what they did was they would take each rider and film them in a studio and record this like movement of them. And so then they were able to digitally input them into the army. So each one of those riders is actually a real rider that they just like put into the CGI system software and they're able to manipulate it however they want. So it was actually drawn from reality. And also there weren't enough men that could ride horseback for filming in New Zealand. So a lot of women that were horseback riders were actually soldiers and they just glued beards and long and, and put helmets on them to make it seem like they were men riding horses. So a lot of the riders of these Rohan and Gondor armies are women actually. Now that you say that, you, there are a couple of questionable, be questionable beards in that movie. <laughs> like you look at the, some like quick shots of soldiers and like, is that a real beard? <laughs> I see a tag. <laughs> but at the same time as Helm's Deep, we have Merry and Pippin and they're in Fanghorn Forest hanging out with... Um, the tree beard and who's an ent and all these other tree shepherds and it's a it's a pretty solid back and forth where the tree beard and Mary are kind of having a philosophical discussion of whether or not they should get into the fight too. And also up to this point, Pippin hadn't even completely bought into the war. And Pippin even talks about how like we, he just wants to get back to the Shire, but Mary's the one that tries to he convinces him. He's like he's like there won't be a Shire. You don't understand it. And so. They go back and forth with Treebeard, and they have that council. And unfortunately, they don't want to fight until Pippin, I mean, until Mary cleverly has them go towards the direction of Isengard so that the trees can see for themselves what Saruman has done to those to the forest in Fanghorn. And that's what makes them angry, and that's what makes them attack Isengard. The actor who plays Gimli actually voices Treebeard. Oh, yeah, and he improvised a bunch of his lines, too. Yeah, and they had they recorded him, and he spoke his lines through, like, this wooden pipe of some kind that distorted his voice naturally. And although they shot a ton of the film, these films with real landscapes and real forests and real um, geographical structure, ge geological structures, they actually made a lot of these 
trees in Fanghorn Forest because they needed something to look almost alien or very old and and, and almost like magical in a way. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, because that forest, uh, Legolas says, is, is ancient. If he says it's old, then it's wicked old. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was the tree beard was actually a real prop that they used, and it was animatronic, and they added CGI to the facial features, but otherwise it's a real thing that the actors are sitting on, and they actually couldn't get down during the day because they were so high up, and it was just complicated to get off and on it, so they would just stay up there for the entire day of shooting. I love um, in the opening of the next one when they're just smoking up a storm <laughs> when the guys come. <laughs> and what i love the sequence when the ents um battle um saruman's army at isengarden and they they pull that dam down it's an it's amazing special effects and that water it's so hard to do cgi water that's believable yeah but the water in that sequence it's so real i i wonder if peter jackson actually built a model and then poured water down it because it, it seems so realistic it can't be cgi it's, but it's amazing special effects in this film, and it blew me away. Every time I see this sequence, I'm like, wow, this looks amazing. Let's get back to the original trio of Sam, Frodo, and Oh, yeah, I forgot about Gollum, nice. whatever they've been doing since we've been talking. And there's a really great aspect of this film specifically, and then in the third one, where Frodo is becoming very attached to the ring, and there's even shots of him caressing it at night. It's corrupting him. There's even a point where he draws his, his sword on Sam, Sam's neck in uh, Osgiliath. And... Um, Sam, again, brings that hope and optimism. He's able to talk him down. And there's actually this really sad shot where Gollum watches Sam and Frodo talk about the good in the world and why they're fighting and, and why they have to keep going. And he seems very sad because he can't feel those feelings. But because Frodo is being corrupt again, he's beginning to pity Gollum. He's starting to understand what happened to Smeagol. Until again, Frodo betrays Smeagol. And the end of the film is basically Smeagol is, is now being controlled by Gollum again. And Gollum's plotting to steal the ring from them. In that sequence, um, during that battle, when right before Frodo pulls the sword on Sam, first he has that encounter with the uh, the Wraith on wings. And I, I love the addition of these beasts in the film because they end up becoming a major part of Sauron's army um, they're called the fell beasts that the wraiths are flying on and they're so terrifying they're not quite dragons but they they seem to be like part bird part lizard in, in some way and it's an amazing shot when Frodo being tempted by, by the ring just stands on that ledge and then he gets that shot of the wraith and fell beast in the in the background in slow motion it's it's just unbelievable filmmaking And but they're a terrifying monster in they're a horrible addition to the film in a good way. And it's just nice to see. It was nice to see that Sauron's army is getting worse by the day. And we also get to spend some time with Faramir, who's Boromir's brother and son of Denethor. And Faramir, of course, he resembles his brother. And he's also a prince of Gondor or the prince because his father is the steward of Gondor at this time. And he doesn't exactly have the same temptation that Boromir seems to have with the ring in terms of Boromir trying to steal it from Frodo at the end of Fellowship. But what happens really is there's a great deleted scene of Boromir and Faramir and their father Denethor that's in, I think it's the extended version it's of this flashback. movie. Yeah, and it's a flashback where it shows the three of them, Boromir, Faramir, and their father Denethor talking. And, Deneth and you can really see 
what drove Boromir to the point to trying to steal the ring from Frodo because his father insists to him that he has to get the ring and he has to get the ring to Gondor at all costs, basically. It really shows that motivation of Boromir in Fellowship of the Ring. And then also it shows you uh, the reason I think why Denethor goes so crazy in Return of the King is because he's responsible for Boromir's death. He's the one that made Boromir go on that mission to join the Fellowship and go to, to um, Elrond and, at the Council and again, get the ring at all costs. And that's what eventually leads to Boromir's death, trying to get it. Whereas uh, Faramir, again, he has an opportunity to claim the ring for himself in a way, but he remembers he had kind of an opposite promise and offers his assistance to the hobbits instead. And Denethor, he has raised his his two sons to uh, obsess over trying to please him. Like that's the most important thing in the world is to please their father. And that informs all of their actions and motivations until in the original trio, now that they're not going to the Black Gate, Gollum is now going to lead them to a secret, super secret other passage into Mordor. So this is obviously where Gollum is starting to come up with this plan with Smeagol to to sabotage them and to steal the ring for himself. And he's taking him to that back alley. And he keeps mentioning she. she like, who, who is she? Who is she? She's always, she always has to feed. 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 What state is precious? <laughs> it's a great cliffhanger. It's a, it's a fantastic penultimate episode of the, of the finale. And uh, they did an astounding job with this movie. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I think we covered up pretty much everything important in this film. And it's, it's amazing. And... I, I think it's, for me, it's my third favorite of the three, but still, it's one of the best movies ever made. How could you say that? It's your third favorite. <laughs> you want to do some uh, fun facts on Two Towers? Let's do it. Oh, yeah. Let's go, man. Andy Serkis was originally given the role of Gollum as doing voiceover work. It was just going to be a few weeks of doing voiceover, and that's it. But... Like I mentioned earlier, Peter Jackson loved him so much, he decided to have him actually perform on set with the actors because in the studio he was doing so much physically that Jackson wanted to take advantage of that. And that led to him eventually deciding months later to motion capture him and really try and capture him digitally as well. So it was uh, uh, several steps to finally figuring out what to do with Andy Serkis. And he finally was like, hey, go ahead, go crazy. As the orcs have black blood in these films, it was only natural that the inside of their mouths should not be pink, but black as well. To achieve this, the orc actors had to swill a licorice-based mouthwash prior to each of their scenes. I'm not a fan of licorice. Black licorice, I don't like very much, yeah. Dad loves it, but I don't like it. The crew filmed 22 hours of footage for the Battle of Helm's Deep, and it was trimmed down to a 39-minute sequence. And the battle took over four months to shoot, Three months of those at night and one month during the day. For the vet, for the visual effects of Gollum, one frame, one single frame of Gollum would take around eight minutes to render, while one frame of Treebeard would take up to 48 hours to render. In order to keep his throat lubricated, Andy Serkis drank bottles of what he called Gollum juice on set, and Gollum juice was made of a mixture of honey, lemon, and ginger. And ginger. The rendering of Gollum would take six hours for one single shot. So the waiter crew would have to do their work during the day and then have the computer render it overnight and check the results in the morning to see if it worked out well. 
In the movie, Lord Elrond dispatches a squadron of elves to Helm's Deep to assist the Rohan soldiers, but this doesn't actually happen in the book since the elves were occupied defending their own homes from attacks by Sauron's forces at the time. However, the decision was made to include elves in this movie to show their sacrifices and avoid the suggestion that the elves leave all the fighting in the movies to humans. Faramir doesn't even um, take the hobbits hostage in the book. If one, if someone watched all three extended versions of the Lord of the Rings films back to back to back, it would take eleven hours and twenty one minutes to finish the entire thing. Hey, what are you doing this weekend? Hey, people do that with Stranger Things when it comes out. That's <laughs> true. They complain about a long movie, but then they'll watch eight episodes of a TV series in one night. <laughs> At the end of the film, Gandalf, Aragorn, and Theoden, and they're sitting on their horses, and they're and Gandalf gives that great. Um, little monologue about like the battle of Helm's Deep is over the battle for Middle Earth has just begun has just begun and the fourth rider is Eomer or at least it was supposed to be Eomer but Carl Urban wasn't available that day and he wasn't on set so they got an extra who looked similar to him to sit on that horse along with the other three and so if you look at the shot those the three main cast and then there's this random guy sit, sit, sitting on a horse next to them. And it was supposed to be Carl Urban. And what happened was Peter Jackson, he intended to CGI Carl Urban's face over this guy's face. But they forgot to. <laughs> and so now there's just shot of this random guy sitting next to Gandalf on a horse. There's also another mess up that's, that involves Carl Urban where it's when he's talking to Legolas, Aragorn, and Gimli, and after he tells them that they burnt all the bodies and it's piled up over there, when he gets on top of his horse and he's about to ride away, his sword falls out from its sheath. And obviously they cut the sound, but you can clearly see it just fall to the ground. He just keeps running his dialogue. Yeah, I've seen that shot. It's so funny. And that concludes our episode of Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to head on to patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast to become a patron get all the exclusive content and perks that come with that. And head on over to our website, RaidersoftheLostPodcast.com to check out all of our merch, our content, and become a member of our fan club.